Everyone? Check I'm switched on, yep. Well, as Andrew said, he invited me a couple of months ago to do the hot topic. And as a football fan, I naturally thought of preaching about how Leicester won the title. Um, but he wasn't too keen on that idea. So, of course, the other thing that's always in the news at the moment is this great idea of Brexit. So, uh, Tim last week, as, as he was sharing, said um, in his visits here, he'd noticed that not many people were talking about this whole topic of whether the Britain should leave the EU or not in terms of a biblical perspective. It was mostly about money, sovereignty, and being British rather than being European. So I thought this week would be a good chance just to give us some kind of a biblical framework. I'm not pretending to answer your questions, so I, I don't have the answer to this. Um, that's for Paul Mann. He's, he's the expert on, what is it, 60s to 90s pop music. Um, oh Lord, won't you let us know? Should we stay or should we go? I have no idea. I still haven't made up my mind on it. But what I do, what I do want to do is uh, point you to some good resources. Particularly the CARE website has pretty much everything listed up there. Um, not everything, but if you're interested in doing your own research, then come to me afterwards. I can give you all those. Because I think it's worth being informed on this. It's worth having a prayerful opinion, and it's worth taking part. We're in a democracy. It's a privilege and a responsibility. But what I want to do this morning is perhaps look at one biblical passage that will help uh, orientate our, our thinking about this topic. And you may think, well, you don't really care about Europe, but it does play an important theological role. Europe paints a picture of heaven and hell. So in heaven, the British are the policemen, the French are the cooks, Germans build the roads, the Swiss keep time, the Italians do the romance, and the weather is Spanish. And of course, in hell, the French are the policemen, Germans do the cooking, Italians build the roads, Spanish keep time, Swiss do the romance, and the weather is, of course, British. So, although it's not bad today. So, uh, if nothing else, hopefully Europe will uh, spark your interest that way. But I do want to root it in a biblical passage. So, let's read together uh, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 to 17. And I've no idea what page in the, in the church Bible. So, if someone finds it and shouts out, that would be great. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 17. Page 1218, according to Colin. Okay, let's read it together. And Peter says this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God, 
Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. So that's our, our biblical passage that we're going to use to get somewhat of a perspective on Brexit. Now, I'm going to focus more on the biblical side and then do the Brexit bit at the end. So if that gets squished in, it's not so bad. You can form your own opinions anyway. But I do want us to get the biblical reflection. So Peter is writing this letter to a group of Christians made up of Jews and Gentiles in what's today northern Turkey. You could say this is coming from the center of Europe, from Rome where Peter was, to the outer skirts of the Roman Empire at the time, of, of Turkey and that area. It's a bit like if someone was writing to us Brits on the edge of the, the European Empire today. So hopefully there's some relevance for us. But he says he calls them chosen exiles living in these specific areas of Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, etc. And it's interesting that it, right at the beginning he paints what is really the theme running through the book of these two citizenships. We have a spiritual identity before God. We're chosen elect exiles. But on the other hand, we do live in concrete places in these areas. So we have an earthly citizenship and we have a heavenly citizenship. And the book is helping us how to balance those two and how to live in a true way that reflects our heavenly citizenship in whatever earthly situation we find ourselves and it seems like this group of, of believers was going through persecution, some kind of a pressure from, from having their faith. And so this book, um, Peter writes to encourage them to stay true and firm because of all that God has done for them, because of their salvation, because of who Christ is, the identity is the, the rock, the stone that has been rejected, now the cornerstone, as Peter says earlier in chapter 2. And so he's giving them an identity as God's chosen people, even though they've been rejected by society. So, as he builds through, we come to our, our passage, verse 9, and there, well, how I want to approach the passage, sorry, is through the, this kind of threefold way of looking at our identity, our mission, and our conduct as Christians in the world, and how that will play into what we think about issues like Brexit. Um, so, as we come to verse 9, Peter um, explains what their identity is as the people of God and how that's wrapped up intrinsically. There's no way of separating it with the mission they also have as the people of God. And so in verse 9, he says four things about them. First, you're a chosen people, then a royal priesthood, then a holy nation, and lastly, a people belonging to God to declare his praises who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And what Peter has done there is taken two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 43, 20 to 21, and Exodus 19, 5 to 6, and he's kind of mixed them up, put them back together, and said, our identity as Christians, your identity, struggling under persecution, is based on the identity of the people of God that we find in the Old Testament. So let's look at them one by one briefly. First, you're a chosen people, Exodus 43:20. God's action to choose a people from out of the nations was not because Israel was a special people. In fact, part of their creed was to remember that their father was a wandering Aramean of no special worth or value that God chose. And so this idea of chosen people is not an idea of superiority or somehow inherently being better than the rest. I know that's hard for us British people to cope with. We grow up with that sense, and having lived in other countries, I find other countries grow up with the same sense. So we're not alone in that. It's 
part of our DNA as human beings is to think somehow our culture is best. But this is not what it means to be a chosen people. It means God in his mercy reached down and put, pulled us apart to be his people. And so it's a powerful statement for these exiles, these people feeling rejected by society, saying, who am I? And God is saying, actually, you're a chosen people. Then he goes on to say, not just chosen to feel good about yourself, but chosen to be a royal priesthood. And this draws from Exodus 19. So as priests, the Old Testament priesthood had this amazing privilege of access to God. They were the ones who served in the temple. They were the ones who got to offer the sacrifices and have this kind of special relationship with God. And that's what Peter is saying all of us in Christ now have. But it's not just about that privilege, it's now a responsibility. When God told the people of Israel in Exodus 19, you're my priests, my nation, he's saying among the other nations, they still belong to God. And so Israel's role was one, just as the priests were to intercede for the rest of Israel, Israel as a priesthood was to intercede for the rest of the nations. Just as a priesthood was to bless the people, we read in number six, the priestly blessing, So Israel as a nation was to be a blessing to the nations around. And that goes back to Abraham when God called him. He said, I've called you and I'm going to bless you, Genesis 12, but it's to be a blessing to the nations. So as a priesthood, Peter is telling this people that, yes, you have this special relationship with God, but it's not just for that. It's to be a blessing to those around you. It's to intercede for those around you. So it's, a, it's an amazing privilege, but at the same time, it's a responsibility. Our identity is matched up in our mission. On the one hand, we're the priesthood. On the other hand, we have a mission to be a blessing and to be interceding for the nations. Then Peter goes on and says, you're a priesthood, and that means you need to be a holy nation. Part of all the requirements of priesthood in the Old Testament was all the rituals they had to go through to be holy and set apart for this special service for God. And Peter applies that now to this group of Christians. You've been set apart in a special way to serve God, but not just to kind of look different in what you don't do, but to be a distinctive people among all the others. So there should be something about us as the people of God, a a holiness and a distinct way of living that immediately points people to God. So we're a holy nation. And then Peter says, we're his possession. We belong to God. Our first allegiance is to him, above any kind of national allegiance. 1 Corinthians tells us we are not our own. You've been bought with a price. And in in chapter 1 of this this book, 1 Peter, Peter reminds us that price wasn't silver or gold or perishable things, verse 17 to 19, but it was the precious blood of Christ that redeemed us. So live your lives, he goes on to say, here in reverent fear. So we need to ask ourselves, you know, do you wake up in the morning and think, am I not, I'm not my own today, I belong to God, I've been set apart for him? Or do we just think, I get up, I get on with my life, it's my life to live, or my wife's life to live for me? No. <laughs> how, how do we approach today? Is it as belonging to God, or this is my plan, this is the way I'm going forward? Penny laughed, Colin didn't, I don't know what's going on there. But it's not just belonging to him, just to belong to him, being a special people in a nice group here together. It's, as he says there at the last part, so that we can declare the praises 
of him who've call, who's called us out of darkness into light. And although the NIV uses just declare the praises, it's much more than just singing songs of praise. The word Peter used talks about, uh, the ESV translates it, God's excellencies. It's telling about how great God is, how amazing his salvation is, how amazing he is as our God. And so we've been redeemed, set apart, given this priesthood to declare to the rest of the world um, how amazing God is. So yes, it is worship. Yes, it is singing his praises, but it's also witness. It's letting the world know just who God is. And when you read Isaiah 43 from where that that section comes from of being a people called out to praise him, twice in the few verses before it, God tells Israel, you are my witnesses. You are to let the nations know there's no salvation anywhere else. This is the Old Testament telling us our identity is to declare God's praises. In him alone is salvation. So in this verse 9, Peter is piling up this description of this people feeling isolated, out of sync with the world, and telling them, this is your identity. And it's an identity that carries responsibility. So it's identity and mission together. But he doesn't stop there. To kind of make it even better, he then goes on in verse 10 to say this, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then here he draws on Hosea. Now Hosea was a prophet to, in the Old Testament, that God kind of, I feel in a mean way, made him make his life a whole testimony. So he had to call one of his children, not my people, and another one, not shown mercy. So I don't know how you deal with that at the breakfast table, but saying, not my people, bring the toast. That was his job, was to be this spokesperson to Israel through his life. And he also had to marry his wife, who was unfaithful, as a whole picture of God's relationship with Israel. But just here, he draws on this idea of of this not my people and not shown mercy, but God in his compassion can't leave it there. He wants to just say that's their name, but in a few verses he says, but you know what? Because of my mercy, I'm going to say to not my people, you are my people. Because of my love for you, I'm going to say to not seen compassion or not shown compassion, I will show you compassion. And maybe it is about Lester after all, being nobody to somebody. But this is much greater. We've been brought into this amazing story of being called God's people. Now, I think we, it's just, we just take it for granted sometimes. But it, it's such a tremendous thing that our identity is no longer defined by the world. It doesn't matter if you're British, Spanish, whatever. If you've had a lousy day, if work tells you you're rubbish or you feel like a, you're failing in whatever area, God's message, his declaration is, I have shown you mercy and I have called you my people. You're my people. That's a word from God, and that's part of our identity. And we need to dwell on that and realize that, because we get so easily sucked into what the world tells us who we are. We are judged by our education, or our job, or our riches, or lack of them, or our nationality, whatever it is. But that's not who we are. You are my people. I've shown you mercy. And then Peter reminds them something they knew very well, that they were exiles and aliens, going into the very first part of verse 11. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. And so 
this part of the message is a bit harder for us to grasp because most of you in this room will have maybe even grown up in Gloucester, I don't know, and never left the county. You feel at home here, but Peter's message is you are not at home here. I can identify being a missionary kid. I've lived in, I think, six different countries to date, and Spain is the one I've spent the longest continuous time together. So I have no sense of identity, and if anything I say today offends you about Britain, it's because I have a deficient sense of being British. I acknowledge that. But our identity is not wrapped up in any kind of national identity. We are not British. We're, first of all, citizens of heaven. In this world, we are aliens. We're exiles. We don't belong here. You're not at home. At least we shouldn't feel like we fit. Our citizenship is in heaven. And what happens is our natural tendencies, because we're surrounded by citizens of the world, is when we're out there is to be that side of our citizenship to come to the fore. And then when we're in church, uh, we remember, polish our halos, we are citizens of heaven and we show up smiling, hopefully, or maybe not. But we have this battle between one citizenship and another. And Peter is reminding him, your primary citizenship is heaven. That's what really counts. The rest is passing. So in these few verses, Peter has painted a picture of what it means to be the people of God. You are God's chosen people, a priesthood, a holy, distinctive nation, his possession to praise him, called out of darkness into his light, citizens of heaven, sojourners and exiles on earth. But wrapped up in that identity is this sense of mission. We've been called to be a priesthood to bless the nations, not retreat from them. We've been called to mission to proclaim God's greatness, his salvation, and to show compassion to others. So how does then Peter develop this? He talks about how we should live in the light of our mission and our identity. And this word conduct that I put in the middle is, is a key for Peter in this letter. The NIV translates it a few different ways, but it shows up in 1 verse 15 where we're called to holy conduct. 1 verse 18, we're called to leave behind futile conduct. Here in 2 verse 12, to have honorable conduct. It's the way wives win their husbands by their good conduct. It's how we match our message. I don't know why Mark is laughing there. It's how we match our message in 1 Peter 3.15 where it says, be prepared to give a defense. But it says in verse 16, your conduct better match up to your defense and your message. And so it's a key concept for Peter that our mission and identity spills over into our conduct, the way we live. So the NIV says here, live such good lives, verse 12, among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And, and he begins first with the second part of 11b, where he says, I, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So conduct has kind of this this idea together, brought together first of, yes, not doing the wrong things, not letting our earthly, normal human desires take control. And we know very well what they are. We battle them every day. And part of our new identity is to learn to say no to them. And I, I won't go into the obvious ones because they're obvious and we all know what they are. But I think there's some that are more subtle that being part of a culture we don't even recognize. And that's why it's helpful to come from a new culture and see different things. 
One of them, obviously, I think in, in our society is the sense of materialism, that what we have identifies who we are. And so we think we'll get happiness through things, and that becomes a driving desire that does wage war against our soul. It wages war against my identity. As a people of God, I'm continually being challenged by it. Well, if I just had that, for me it's a big motorbike, for you it might be something else, then I would be happy. But that's not the message of 1 Peter. Our identity is more important than that. Then I think what I've noticed here and Spain is that we live in a very addicted culture. We're continually addicted to things. And they might be small things, but they still wage war. Um, I went to a... (laughs) I laughed because I went to a lecture on how to interpret the Old Testament on Wednesday night. That's why I wasn't at the church meeting. It was part of something I have to do for my course. And in the process, someone there completely forgot that command about not stealing and swiped my phone. So I went in with a phone and came out without one. And uh, I was trying to think, I can't believe someone sitting around me would have done that. Um, But actually, in not having a phone, I've realized how addicted I was to screen. So it's probably a good thing from the Lord. But we have these little addictions that are part of our culture that we don't even recognize. And Peter is saying, get rid of those things. Learn to live out your identity by not giving in to these things that wage war against you. Then he says, not just not being defined by what we don't do, but defined by an honorable life. Let your conduct be among the Gentiles. Verse 12, such good lives, the NIV says, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. So we have this double sense that we live a very honorable, upstanding life that's matched by good deeds that people can see. It's not just about not sinning. It's about doing good things that other people can actually see and say, wow, there's something going on here. And of course, Peter is talking collectively to the church as a whole. So it's not that each of us has to do every good deed but that something about us as the body of Christ here in Abbey should set us apart by our conduct, by the good things we're doing. Um, and I was thinking about this. I, I, remember, I, I, I really believe part of what makes Gloucester City Mission special is because it's that combination of proclaiming yet matched by good deeds that it impacts the people who receive that ministry. And I can remember from growing up in Ghana that my my parents were missionaries there and their main role was Bible translation. But often because we had, actually we were living in a very rural part of Africa, no hospitals, no electricity, no running water, no whatever you want to think about as part of modern life. My parents, my my children can't believe I grew up without, you know, screen, PlayStation, all that. Like, how did you live? But anyway, that's another story. My, my father would often spend the first part of his morning just sitting out on our veranda and treating the many different sort of medical cases that came by because there's nowhere else to go. So he could get medicines on trips to the town. And so he'd just sit there cleaning people's wounds, disinfecting things, giving them malaria tablets if they got malaria, and doing a variety of different things that had nothing to do with Bible translation but were good deeds that spoke to the community. And while I was living there, I met... Um, another family that lived in an even more isolated place and they're still there t- to this well they've um, they work in, in northern Burkina Faso in an area that's completely desert I'd never want to live there running a medical mission and just recently the couple who were in their 80s were taken hostage by Boko well one of whatever it was the Malian um, Al-Qaeda group whatever they're called 
And the outpouring from the local community has been incredible. Because said, these people, we know they're Christians and it's a Muslim area. They're our people. They've shown us God's love in a way that we can't deny. And so that the local community has been at the forefront of calling for their release. And the wife has been released, but the husband still, after three or four months, still they're still kind of holding on to him, hoping for some kind of ransom. And they're poor as dirt. They've built this hospital from nothing with few donations. And it's kind of ironic that there's an outpouring in sort of online Christian things because they've been taken kidnapped when for 40 years they've been doing the same thing, faithfully, showing God's love to the community. So they need to see your honorable deeds. It's not just, and I say this hopefully in the best way possible, not just about praying, not just about preaching. It's seeing it all come together. And that will dispel the the, the stereotypes. So our good deeds are key. And then, for the sake of time, I want to move on quickly to submitting to God, verses 13 to 16, where it tells us that because of our submission to God, we should actually submit to local authority, to God's ordained authority. He's put it in place. And so when we submit to that, we're submitting to God. Just as Jesus taught, we're to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, so we're to submit to, lo- to the ordained authority around us. And as we do that, and as our good deeds, we will silence those people who come to us accusing us of whatever they want to accuse us as Christians. And I think the trouble is the church often gets into a back and forth. People accuse us of something, so we argue, well, we're not like that. What Peter says is, don't bother arguing, just do some good deeds. That will shut them up. And he says it in a sense that as they see those good deeds, they may come to Christ and give glory to him. And if not now, they certainly will at the end of time. So some very quick implications for Brexit, because I think time is disappearing fast. Firstly, our primary identity is as citizens of heaven, not as British. So though we may think that being British is best, um, the message from 1 Peter is actually being a citizen of heaven is best. And our social identity is a funny thing. You know, we're from Gloucester, not from Cheltenham. We're from England rather than Wales or Scotland, or the other way around, Taff and uh, Chris. We're European when it comes to golf, but probably never any other time. And we, we have this mixed identity. I had a friend in Spain who made the big mistake of going into a Madrid bar with a Barcelona shirt on. Uh, he got out alive, and then the next day he went in with a Madrid shirt on, and they were like, they knew his identity. We can't take on and off our identity like that. We're either one or the other, and we need to stick to it. So our core identity is his people, his position, his possession. And so I think, because I said earlier, our, our natural tendency is to think British is best, and that can make us think, well, let's get out of Europe. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying we need to be aware of that when we make decisions, that our true identity is not ethnic or national, it is in heaven. So my Spanish friends tell me Spanish is the language of heaven, not English. So it's the same everywhere. Then I think our identity and mission means that our attitude to Europe needs to be not be one of separation, and it could be in or out, that's not really the issue, but it should be one of intercession, not condemnation. It should be one of blessing on Europe and the Europeans among us now, not ignoring them. It should be one of witness, not withdrawal. Europe is like our Samaria, if you like. 
And some mission leaders suggest that leaving will have a major impact on mission in Europe. Keep that in mind when you come to think about it. And this, I think, is a, is a big challenge, is our role as God's people is one of welcome. Israel was told that as aliens and exiles, they should, having been there in Egypt, they should know how to treat the alien and exile among them. And we as aliens and exiles should know how to treat the aliens and exiles that come among us. How many times do we view with resentment European immigrants? here looking for work, whether they're from Romania or Spain or wherever. That's not the Christian response to the the exiles among us. And then as submitted servants of God, the question is not, am I better off with Brexit or uh, is Britain better off? The question is, what is the key for God's kingdom? What serves God's purpose best, whether leaving or staying? And you still can make that choice But you need to think it through in terms of that, not in terms of what's best for Britain or yourself. So Peter's conclusion is respect, honor everyone, even the French, even politicians. Love the community of believers. That's really our true distinctive. And that love should spill out into the community. This is verse 17, by the way. Fear God, not Europe, not leaving Europe, not whatever political decision happens. He is the only one we're to fear. And honor the emperor. If we do end up staying in Europe and you hate those European commissioners, Peter still says, honor them. He lived under Nero. You can't get much worse than that. So honor the emperor or the European commissioner or David Cameron or whoever it is. We trust in God's sovereignty and his appointment of authority. A writer in the second century trying to persuade someone about being Christian says this, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by either country speech or customs. They reside in their respective countries but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home and every home a foreign land. They find themselves in the flesh but do not live according to the flesh. They spend their days on earth but hold citizenship in heaven. That's our citizenship. And this is our God's word to you today. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people belonging to God to declare his excellencies.